When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, I'm Anna Machen and this is Why, where we explore the wildest and weirdest questions in science. Today, For the first time in history, humans are on the verge of traveling away from planet Earth in significant numbers. But will space travel mess with our minds as well as our bodies? Space tourism is becoming an ever closer reality as private enterprise invests millions in near-Earth flights. Incredibly, NASA is planning to land humans on Mars within 10 years, and Elon Musk is trying to get there even sooner through his SpaceX program. So there is now an urgent need to explore the impact of space missions on the human psyche. Imagine stepping down onto that rusty, rocky, untamed surface, knowing that it was your base for at least the next year, and getting home to Earth would take months. Would you cope? Astronauts who took part in closed biome experiments in Russia emerged happy after 180 days, but they were allowed to leave at any time and received weekly visits from family. Would their compatriots on the real Mars be as happy? We know we can survive in space on a biological level, but what about psychologically? Humans can adapt to a lot of things, especially trained humans who are very competent to begin with and work in simulations. Today on Why, we're looking beyond the novelty of zero gravity and the physical trials of existing in space to how we would cope emotionally. We're social animals, but how would socialising work if you're on a mission with just 15 other people and three of them were really annoying? You can usually, you know, you have a tough time with your roommate, you go and take a walk, get away from them for a while, but you can't do that in space very easily. Dr. Nick Canas is an emeritus professor of psychiatry at the University of California, San Francisco, and has undertaken psychological research with astronauts and cosmonauts for NASA. What are the major psychological issues that astronauts can face and that they may need to deal with? In general, certainly astronauts are in situations where they're under a great deal of stress and in a confined environment. They're separated from home and and everything that they they love on the ground. And so it's a matter of getting along with other people in a small space where you can also do the work that needs to be done in an environment that's very dangerous. So as you can see, there are a lot of stressors that face astronauts on orbit and that they have to learn to deal with. How do you study the effects of space upon them? Obviously, you're back on Earth. How do you get the data back from them as to what they're experiencing when they're up there in space? 
our two main studies in the 90s were, to my knowledge, the first and second extramural research projects, that is, projects that were proposed by people outside of the agency. And they were funded by NASA. The battle was to decide in a way of studying the psychology and the interactions of the crew without compromising their confidentiality or making them to the point where people could recognize them. Astronauts were very sensitive to that because psychologists and psychiatrists are people who can ground them potentially based on psychological issues. And so even though we were not involved in the day-to-day medical operations, we were a research team, nevertheless, there was some apprehension. So we had to do a lot of compromising in terms of this and guaranteeing that we wouldn't identify any subjects, we wouldn't publish anything until we had five missions under our belt that we published group-level data. Then the other question was, how do you study them? We elected to use standardized questionnaire measures that have been studied for reliability and been very accurate on the ground. There's standard measures of looking at emotional states and people's interactions with each other. And so we translated these into Russian and back translated them and back again. And then they were sent up on disks that were then loaded into the computers on the space stations. So the questionnaires were completed every week by the subjects and then periodically would be sent down to Earth, to our lab, to analyze. The data you got out of that, what did it show? Did it show that maybe certain emotions are heightened or were there certain situations which the astronauts found more stressful than others? We were interested in several things, and they were all at the level of the team, if you will. We were interested in studying displacement. This is something that you could probably identify with when your boss tells you something you don't like and you can't tell your boss off. You go home and you yell at the kids or yell at the canary or something. And you basically take your your anger and your pressure away from somebody who's stimulating it to an innocent party because they're safer. So we found that. We predicted that would happen on some of our measures. And in fact, we found that the astronauts, when there is a lot of pressure on board, as judged by their own interaction, their own analyses of the group climate, during weeks that they were under a lot of stress, those are the weeks that they perceived the lack of support from the ground. We thought basically they were displacing their tension from each other to people in mission control. And we found that on all of our measures that we used. So displacement is a phenomenon that occurred in space. We also looked at leadership, the role of the commander, and we found that the good commanders were those that were rated as being high in terms of doing the task, but also high in terms of supporting morale. And so we found that both of those roles, the taskmaster role and the morale support role, correlated significantly with perceived cohesion of the group. So high weeks of high support were correlated with the, we're a very cohesive crew. So we found that leadership was very important as well. We did not find evidence of something that's been written about that astronauts may have drops in morale after the halfway point of the mission. This is from the Antarctic data where it was found in the Antarctic about six months into a mission, the people in the Antarctic start getting dysphoric and depressed and have conflicts after the halfway. Think of it this way, you get to the halfway point of a long mission of isolation and you say, oh, I made it, I'm finally here. And then you say, wait a minute, I got another half to go before I go home. 
And so that drop in morale has been found in the Antarctic. We did not find that in space. We think it's because the crew members had interactions with their family members and people on the ground. And when they felt a little blue or homesick, they could just talk to them on the ground and boost up their morale. Oh, that's great. So they still have that contact with the family, which, yes, I assume helps with things like homesickness and maybe relieving some of that stress. Correct. I think there are two factors that really help a lot. One is interacting with family members and other significant people on the ground. And the other is seeing the beauty of the earth as a reminder of home. Very importantly, we actually studied positive effects of being in space and found that all the factors that we looked at, the, the most important was viewing the Earth and its beauty and speculating on it. And one of the favorite pastimes of astronauts is to take pictures of the Earth and to look at it. So that is really important to boost morale. Now, of course, things will change going to Mars because the Earth now becomes an insignificant blue-green dot in the heavens rather than a beautiful orb with clouds and greenery and so on. No, I can imagine if I went into space, and I must admit the bit that I would look forward to is looking back at Earth. I think it must be the most amazing grounding experience. So let's move on to the future and Mars. Are we going to see additional psychological challenges? Yes, you can't look back at the Earth. But also, is it going to take a different sort of astronaut to be able to deal psychologically with, with that different length of mission? Yes. Basically, we have additional stressors going to Mars that we haven't faced before. We have a pretty good handle on on-orbit missions psychologically. We've studied them. We kind of understand the parameters and so on. But there are several new stressors going to Mars that's generally related to distance. It's so much longer to get to Mars, about seven months under current systems of propulsion. And we're talking about a two to two and a half year mission. And it's a long way away. So we're suddenly increasing the time delay in communication, maybe 25 minutes round trip. So if you, I say to you from Mars, hello, how are you? I'll hear back from you 25 minutes later on average. Wow. Sorry, I didn't realize it was so long. That is going to make you feel very isolated. Partly that's one factor is you're isolated more, not only because of the communication delay, and it can be up to 44 minutes round trip if Mars is on one side of the sun and Earth is on the other side. So we're talking about a long time delay. So you're feeling isolated because you can't speak to your friends and family and mission control in real time. Also, you're isolated because the Earth is this insignificant blue dot in the heavens. My colleague and I, um, Dietrich Manzi, have coined a term Earth out of view phenomenon, where we don't know exactly how profoundly seeing the Earth in this way will affect the psyche of the astronaut. It may make them feel really lonely, really isolated, really disconnected from Earth and everything that they love on Earth. So the Earth out of view may or may not have a profound psychological effect. Yeah, you can use a telescope and you can see the Earth as a globe again, and that may be a countermeasure, but still you really are sensing that you're quite far away as opposed to being on the moon where the Earth is right there in the heavens and you can look at it very nicely. But you also, we're taking away because of the time delay, the ability to get support from family members and friends and mission control. If you have an accident right now, a lot of problems were worked through 
with in conjunction with mission control during on-orbit missions. Well, what do you do if you have a fire? What if you have a medical emergency? You're going to have to take care of it yourself. And so extreme autonomy is going to occur where the crew members will have to deal with problems themselves rather than being as dependent on the ground as they are now. So there'll be increased autonomy, the time delay, decreased support, more dependence on technical resources of your very own that you take with you on Mars. And so there'll be a number of factors that come into play that we don't fully understand that hopefully can look at in simulation before the mission. Ultimately, the plan seems to be that we procreate on Mars. That seems to be the goal. And we start off a whole new colony of humans on another planet. Do you think when we go to Mars, and from a psychological point of view, are we going to actually have to look for different attributes in the people who we're going to start forming close relationships with? Are there psychological strengths, for example, their ability to deal with this new colony and this new way of life going to be things that we look for in a partner? You know, How are we going to date? How are we going to find that mate in this entirely different environment? Well, it's hard to predict for sure. Science fiction writers have speculated on this. They speculate that there'll be sociological shifts as time goes on and people adapt to where they're located. I think initially there will be control over the selection. And one of the issues will be, well, you know, how many men and women do we want to send? How many people of different countries do we want to send? Who's paying for the mission? If the UK pays one-tenth of the amount to support such a mission because they're very expensive going to Mars, then maybe they will have one-tenth of the colonists. What are the skill sets? Most of the people going on the first few Mars missions and setting up a colony will probably be professionals of some kind. They'll be scientists. But you're going to have to have a plumber. You're going to have to have somebody going up there to connect things. They'll be engineers, but after a while, you can't have everybody being an engineer. So I think it will shift from a kind of a very selective group with very set skill sets to do the colony and set it up to more generalizable of people going up who can afford it and who just want to go. There might be religious sects who will hire Elon Musk to send their people to form a subcolony for religious reasons. So, you know, I think with the private enterprise growing as much as it is, you can have a variety of colonies set up and a variety of people going down the road that will make it much more kind of like the earth. Obviously, we've colonized places before. You know, we colonized America, we colonized Australia. Are the lessons that we can learn from maybe where those colonizations went wrong in certain areas that will help us, inform us about how we can colonize Mars? There are lessons. Uh, there's a fellow named Schwartz who actually studied a number of colonies and felt that when you set up a colony, you go through three phases. You have a kind of a pioneering phase where the first year or two is one where you just wonder if you're going to survive. Once you pass that, then you go through a consolidation phase where people start to form uh, mores and you decide, well, you know, are we going to have a norm of the old country or the new world? Are we going to have the same kind of government that sent us here or are we going to form our own government based on who we have in the environment that we have currently? So you have norms forming after the first year or two as a colony gets itself established. And then you have a stabilization where then the norms are set, the rules are made, everybody understands it, and you just kind of move along in a kind of a stable way. Schwartz thought this would be the standard kind of formation. This 
likely will occur going to Mars, but maybe not. Maybe there'll be so much control and so much political issues going on that will confound it. It depends a lot on the early factors and how it's set up, but then it can evolve over time. My guess is over time, the colonists will want their own political entity, and so they may rebel. It'll be very complicated. So we're in this new colony. We might have developed whole new social rules of dating. Do you think actually it's an opportunity in a way for us to remake the rules of dating, for example, in a more modern way? We can start again. I think that will be the hope and maybe the intent of many people. And I think in the long run, we'll probably do things we've always done. I think there's no reason to expect humans in time to change much. Yes, the initial group might be a little bit different and a subgroup maybe of engineer think or nerd think or brave people think. But in time, I think things will stabilize and will be a reflection of humanity on Earth more and more sociologically. I expect there'll be some changes and some new things that will happen in some government uh, alterations, but people are kind of people. And, you know, we'll have relationships like we have on Earth. People will be loyal. They'll have sexual contact. Maybe gravity will be a, a factor. You know, right now it's not good to get pregnant in microgravity because the animal studies have shown fetal development problems. We don't know what will happen on Mars with 38% gravity. Can you have babies? We don't know for sure. We don't know about restitution of bone loss on Mars at this point because is 38% enough gravity to help us physiologically or not. So there might be some constraints based on the environment that will affect how people behave. But I think there'll be the tendency of people to kind of do their thing as they do on Earth anyway. Society is complex enough, and I don't see us being major changes in complexity going to Mars. So, Earth out of view phenomenon is a very real thing and a huge consideration when selecting and training astronauts. Also, there are obvious lessons to be learned from past Earthbound colonizations. But while there's certain personality traits that seem to make a good leader here on Earth, I'm interested to know if there are certain personalities or characteristics which make somebody better able to deal with the specific psychological stresses of space. People have done a lot of psychological test studies, and we're pretty good at ruling out candidates for astronauts who may not make it very well based on family histories and working with stress and so on. We're not so good at working on who is going to be the most successful. Usually of the pool of astronauts that go up, you can't predict which one will be the best or have the best experience and which one won't. So we're not very good at that. But psychologically, once you're selected into the core, you're picked for a mission on a variety of factors. Your skill levels, uh, maybe demographic issues that they want to achieve, your ability to get along with other people, and then who's up, who's hasn't flown in a while, and who maybe, uh, maybe was a backup crew, could then be the next uh, regular crew. So a lot of factors go into who goes up. 
they all train for about a year to year and a half before they go up so you can see how well they get along with each other on the ground and that gives you also some clues about it i think the two most important factors psychologically if you want to look at it this way globally are that you're able to do the work you have to do on your own when you have to do it you work as a self-starter you work comfortably on your own but you have the ability to interact and relate with people when it's appropriate such as mealtime parties events that occur so you're kind of introvert and extrovert both you're able to to work on the job and do a good job on your own even if you have to you have the ability to relate and interact with humans your fellow crew members as well during the, the appropriate times you mentioned there you know how maybe somebody is placed on a mission maybe yes they haven't flown for a bit or whatever but does thought go into does this set of crew members get on well enough? Have we got the right personalities here to make sure this is going to gel? Because, you know, if you're on the International Space Station, I understand you're there for months, and therefore it must be important to make sure that this crew is a cohesive unit. Correct. You do have that, and we looked at crews that, that were in space for a long period of time. But you also have visitors, and you have people sent up, and sometimes they're sent up for a specific reason that's based on skill level. So you have to have a kind of a broader perspective on who goes up. However, you, you are correct, though, that there is some thought given to how people will get along. And then, of course, they're observed for a year to year and a half in training to see how they, in fact, do get along. And if for some reason they didn't, then they would just pick new crew members. So we have on-the-job training on Earth in simulation that will give us some clues as well as if our initial choice was accurate or not. It sounds monumentally challenging. And from a social aspect, being with a group of people for three years, what do you think the outcome will be of having a very restrictive social circle for such an incredibly long time? I mean, that is going to have an impact upon mental health, surely. It'll have some kind of an impact. I tend to be an optimist in the sense that I think humans can adapt to a lot of things, especially trained humans who are very competent to begin with and work in simulations. But you're right about the decreased numbers of contacts. Right now on orbit, you haven't really cut your contacts down because you can talk to people in almost real time. I mean, it takes about a second, maybe one to two seconds for communication back and forth to the moon, basically in real time. And you can talk to anyone you want. Nowadays, you can talk to your family, you can phone them through satellite relays. Your network hasn't changed significantly, although your immediate network has. You're confined with a smaller group of people. Mars will be not only being confined with a smaller group of people, especially on the earlier missions, but you also don't have that extensive network that you can relate to uh, in real time. So I think it will be a problem. Uh, right now, the international missions are looking at about four people going to Mars. And I've been pushing more. I think we need maybe six or seven. At least it's a little bit better. But, you know, you're going to have to mix and match people in some way where they have to learn to get along for two and a half years by who they have in their immediate environment. Wow. I mean, four, that's astonishing. Being with three other people for three years. I mean, surely because it's going to be so restricted, it's going to be so isolating. Is it that the selection of these people is going to have to be so much more vigorous? And maybe you're going to have to prepare these people in a different way than you do for an orbital mission. I mean, I don't know whether you do any pre-preparation with them to try and help them deal with issues they might experience. 
with just four people, the risk of it going horribly wrong from a social point of view must be very high. Well, it certainly is higher than on Earth it would be with a small group of people because you can usually, you know, you have a tough time with your roommate. You go out and take a walk, get away from them for a while, but you can't do that in space very easily. And on Mars, you're confined to the same group. You mentioned risk management. We're actually, I'm a big booster of having periodic bull sessions, we call them, to discuss the crew interactions and building it into the program so that you have a period of time, for example, every week, maybe for half an hour, where the whole goal is you sit down and talk about how are we all getting along? And not anything personal, but, you know, what are the issues about being together with other people and how can we relate better? And little things are happening that are irritating John and Sally. Let's look at what those things are and and correct them. You make it an issue in real time through the course of the stay on Mars of continually feeding back and reducing as much interpersonal pressure as you can in a more objective manner without it being during the time of a crisis or the time of where people are really intense in their emotions. So I think this kind of management of the process, if you will, during the mission is really going to be important in relieving some of the interpersonal pressures. Mm, Absolutely. I mean, if we look going forward with Mars, obviously there's people like Elon Musk whose dream is to put the ordinary person on Mars. Now, listening to you talking about how difficult it's going to be to place professional people who have been training for this their whole lives on a mission to Mars, how likely is it that it's going to succeed that we just ultimately colonize Mars and we send people out there who don't have any of this professional experience and they're going to be fine? I mean, I I just can't imagine that working. First issue is going to be professional people who are trained and have learned to interact with each other on the ground and get rid of all the tensions that occur. We've had some experience with that. There was a Mars 500 mission in Moscow where six men were confined for 520 days in a Mars mission simulation. And simulator was one container or two containers that were the trip out and they would go upstairs and simulate being on Mars for a while, tapping on some fake rocks and doing tasks that were related to being on a planet. And then it would come down again and they would simulate returning to Earth. And they did okay. They simulated the voice delay as well. They had some tension. They had some conflicts, but they worked them all out and things worked okay and they managed to get their mission goals established. So we know it can be done in this simulation. But these were people that were trained to somewhat and at least interacted and chosen for them. Then you've got the Elon Musk model where suddenly you're talking about sending a lot of people. One of his programs was to send 100 people in a real colony to go to Mars and that would be your early mission. That's a different mindset. Suddenly you do have more relationships. Suddenly you do have people to interact with. You talk to somebody for a while about cooking and you get sick and tired of cooking. Then you talk to somebody else about photography. You have a lot of shifting of relationships in that kind of an environment. But that's a big task. You have to have a a big rocket, which Elon Musk is working on, and you have to make it work for a big group of people. Plus, One of the scenarios is they go to Mars and they stay on Mars. We're planning to have people come back. Two different scenarios. I think by the time we get to the colony, we'll have other things to think about related to colony formation rather than just exploring an expedition where you return. 
So, it turns out that you have to be a really special person to get that ticket to Mars. And once you're there, there's no easy way back, or even to go for a stroll. But being an extrovert and introvert may actually work in my favour after all. But I wouldn't trust my plumbing skills. That's it for us today on Why. Thank you to Dr Nick Canis. Thank you very much. I enjoyed it. And Nick's book, Behavioural Health and Human Interactions in Space, is available now and was selected as the 2023 Life Sciences Book Award winner by the International Academy of Astronautics. We'll be back with more scientific anomalies, conundrums and weird facts soon. Don't forget to follow the podcast so you don't miss an edition. And follow us on social media too. Links are in the show notes. I've been Anna Machen, asking why. See you next time. Why was written and presented by Anna Machen. The lead producer was Anne-Marie Luff and the audio producer was me, Jade Bailey. The managing editor is Jacob Jarvis and the group editor is Andrew Harrison. Artwork is by James Parrott. Theme music is by DJ Food. Why is a Podmasters production. Podmasters production.